Ryan. Morning, everyone. Full house today. So good to see uh, so many. And uh, just reminds us that uh, we need a new venue uh, once again, and we're going to get one. So that's uh, that's uh, good. If um, you aren't already aware, we're going to be uh, meeting in the Hay School from the 11th of July. Uh, and we are looking forward to it. I, I tell you what, though, uh, on that first Sunday in the haze, we're going to go from looking around right now and being like, gosh, it's full, to looking around and being like, is anyone else here? So, <laughs> hello, hello, hello. So, um, uh, but yeah, that'll be, that'll be a whole new challenge and uh, joyful problem to have, isn't it? Uh, yeah. a, a, a lot of space to fill uh, with new people. So we're, we're looking uh, forward to that. Um, Hopefully you're doing well today. You're uh, you're joining us for the uh, I think the eighth in the uh, death and life series that we're going through. Just as we've been tracking, asking these big questions about death, life, and, and what happens after we die, which have been just so in our faces, really, with um, the COVID pandemic and questions, really, that we as a society have not really had to ask and answer very effectively, at least, um, uh, for, um, uh, for a long, long time. So uh, we are thinking uh, particularly today about what happens after we die, and we've been thinking about that for the last couple of weeks. We thought a couple of weeks ago um, about what was, what, what was known as the intermediate state, what, what happens immediately following, uh, following death. Then we thought last week about the resurrection of the body, and today, we're thinking about everyone's favourite subject from uh, uh, the New Testament, the judgment, the day of judgment. Um, so uh, we're, we're looking forward to I hope that today we, there will be much to encourage us as we look forward uh, to the day when Jesus returns and judges the world. And we're going to be thinking about that from uh, Matthew chapter 25. So if you have a Bible, now will be a good time to turn there. We'll be uh, reading from Matthew chapter 25. Uh, from verse 31 and following, uh, and it will also be on the screen uh, behind me. So let me, uh, let me read that for us. Matthew chapter 25, verse, 21, uh, verse 31 sorry, to the end of the chapter. It says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, And he will separate the people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for you, for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. 
I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Well, let me pray for us. Father, we ask now that you would speak to us. You would speak to us of things that are weighty, things that are difficult, but also things that reveal more of the grace of Jesus to us. I pray that we would leave here this morning our hearts comforted and that we would have great assurance of your love for us as we think about the judgment day that is coming for all mankind. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me uh, start by saying as simply as I can this morning, really what the headline is that we're going to be talking about today. Uh, The Bible teaches that at the end of time, every man, woman and child will stand before the throne of Jesus and be judged for how we have lived our lives. Uh, That's what this passage in Matthew 25 is teaching us, that after we die, one day Jesus will return and we will rise from the grave and give an account to him of how we lived our lives. And that is something that I think many of us find difficult. It's not something we necessarily enjoy thinking about. It's not something that, you know, when we want to chill out and relax at the end of a long day, uh, we we pour out a glass of red and then think, I'm just going to dwell on the judgment day for a while. You know, that's uh, that's probably not something, uh, something that you've done. We don't necessarily find the concept of the judgment day difficult um, to understand. We understand the concept of judgment, don't we? All you have to do is go down to Manchester Crown Court and you uh, get a feel for the dynamics of a courtroom, for the defendant before a judge and so on. What we find difficult is processing this on an emotional and a moral level. Because for many of us, whether we're Christian or not, this just feels kind of wrong and bad. You know, a phrase that I think sums up how many of us feel about the idea of judgment is, is this phrase. Don't judge me. You might have used that phrase once or twice in your life. You might have heard it used once or twice. Because many of us, maybe most of us, hate being judged. We have a strong aversion to it, to put it mildly. We don't want someone else to evaluate our our lives, to tell us whether we're right or wrong. And we'll question the moral authority of someone who does that. Don't judge me. You don't have any right to judge me. You do not define who I am. One of the things that drives uh, that opinion, which I'm sure we'd all agree is pretty prevalent in our society, is the idea that we are the ones who set our own agenda. We're the ones who define our own identity and morality. Many people today would say that the only sin that you can commit is the sin of not being true to yourself. So don't judge me, I'm just being me. 
Now, many of us would say, yeah, we believe that. But of course, there's another phrase that's very prevalent in our society that clashes directly with don't judge me. And it's the phrase that we all learned very quickly as children. Pretty much as soon as we can open our mouths, we learn this phrase. And we've been repeating it ever since and will do for as long as we have breath in our lungs. And it is the phrase, that's not fair. You see, although... We might want to believe that each of us can define what is right and wrong for us, that we can speak our truth, that what is true is entirely subjective. The reality is that none of us actually live like that. None of us actually seem to believe that. I guarantee you uh, that on Tuesday night, we will not believe that. Because what is going to happen on Tuesday night? Let me just... Throw a little prophecy out here for you. 89th minute, a German player runs into the box, throws himself on the floor. The referee gives a penalty and everyone, everyone in that stadium will shout the phrase, that's not fair. Probably because VAR at that point will probably choose not to work either. And so uh, the dive, the blatant dive will not be picked up. And everyone will feel that sense of injustice. That's not fair. You see... That's not fair is an appeal to an absolute standard of fairness or justice. And it's an appeal that makes people come together to declare black lives matter. It's what causes people to unionise and campaign for fairer working conditions. It's why people dedicate their lives to the eradication of human trafficking. There is something inside all of us that instinctively believes that there is an absolute standard of right and wrong. And we might not all agree on what that standard is, but we do all believe that it is there, that it exists. Which is why injustice seems so abhorrent to us and we often verbalise it by saying that is not fair. But for many of us we're caught between a rock and a hard place because We want to say, don't judge me, stay out of my business. I want to define what is right and wrong for me. But then we also make this moral claim to objective universal morality that applies to everyone. So when you think about it, we're really quite inconsistent, aren't we? Uh, So many people, probably many of us included, live worldviews that are very inconsistent, that clash against each other. Well, why why is that? Why do we live between don't judge me and that's not fair? Well, the Bible gives us uh, the answer. And the reason is that God is just, but we fear justice. God is just, but we fear justice. The reason that something deep down inside us tells us time and time again that it's not fair is that we have been created in the image of God. And he is himself creation's standard of morality. There is absolute wrong, there is absolute right, and uh, God is the one as our creator who defines what that is. And his word is the place in which he reveals it. and that might, we might find it hard that we aren't the ones who get to define what is right and wrong. 
But when we think about it, it, it it's obvious that that's the case. If, if there is an external, if there is a standard of justice that applies to all of us, it must be external to each one of us. We cannot be the ones who individually decide it. And therefore, final judgment actually makes perfect sense to the person who says that's not fair. Because if it's true that justice exists outside of us, then it must also be true that there is a day coming when we will be held account to that standard of justice. There's no point there being just, um, uh, right and wrong if there's not a moment when we will be held uh, to account for it. If we can just ignore it, then what's the point? And so actually, we need to start by saying to one another today that it is good news that at the end of time, Jesus will come in his glory and, and pass judgment on the nations. Justice will fully and finally be done. What that means is that every victim of abuse, every victim of racism, everyone who's ever been oppressed, everyone who's ever been, uh, had violence done to them, will receive justice and recompense at the end. Now there is something so deeply satisfying about that when you think about it. There is a righteous joy that we feel when we see justice done. Now that's true for us today when we see something that's wrong made right, we celebrate it, even though there's loads of other injustice going on around the world. Think about those who gathered outside the courtroom on Friday when uh, Derek Chauvin was convicted and jailed for uh, taking George Floyd's life. People celebrated that. There's something that feels deeply right about that. Well, just imagine that feeling magnified a millionfold, a billionfold, when every injustice and wrong that has been done is righted by Jesus. On that day, when Jesus judges the world, no one will say again, that's not fair. That phrase will be a thing of the past. And it was something that we can celebrate and glorify God for. The glory of God in his justice is magnificent. But you know, the reason that we say don't judge me then is not necessarily because we believe that justice is a bad thing, but because we fear that we ourselves will be found wanting. The fierce rejection of judgment that characterises many people is often accompanied by a deep sense of insecurity. A fear that if we are judged, we will no longer be accepted, that we will fail the test. And we hate that because we all crave love and acceptance. We want to be delighted in. We want to be fully and deeply accepted. Honestly, that's how God made us to be. And when we look at ourselves... We are aware that there is stuff in us that, is, that, that even we don't like. There's things that we want to hide. Things that will ultimately condemn us. And the consequences of, of that rejection on the Day of Judgment are unfathomably bad. Unfathomably bad. I don't think any of us can truly appreciate the awfulness of Jesus' words in verse 46 when he says that some will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. 
paradise or hell. Those are the options that face us. And whilst the glory of eternal life, which we'll be looking at next week, uh, is so great that it dwarfs anything awesome that could possibly happen and we could, that could, we could experience in this life, the prospect of eternal punishment, eternal fire, Jesus says in verse 41, makes even the strongest heart weak when we truly consider what that would be like. God is just, but we fear justice. Now we might ask, well, how can God be just if hell is eternal? You ever thought about that? That's a, that's a question that for some people is really difficult one, difficult one to get their heads around. Because isn't hell actually evidence that God is not just, that he's not fair? How can God eternally punish us for sins that, commit, that are committed in just this life? I mean, you could live a hundred years and you could be the worst kind of person in the world and yet it seems unfair that a hundred years of awfulness will be punished by an eternity of suffering. That's the argument. Well, the Bible answers that. And I, I, th- I thought it was important today just to, to speak into that because whether or not that's, that's your, um, your concern, something that you wrestle with or not, it's important for us as Christians to, to know what the, what the answers to these things are. Why is it that God is just and fair, that Jesus is just and fair to punish people for eternity? Well, I think the Bible gives us two reasons. Firstly, it's fair because of who God is. We are familiar, aren't we, with different levels of consequence based upon the person who is offended. So, you know, if you, uh, if you punch your brother and sister... Uh, punch your brother or sister when you're playing at home when you're five years old the punishment is probably going to be uh, proportionate to that crime which would be something along the lines of you lose your pocket money you don't get to watch uh, Netflix at all something along those lines however if you are on a night out in Manchester and you drunkenly punch a police officer you're probably not going to lose your Netflix privileges are you? you're probably going to spend at least one night in the cell and If, as we saw a couple of weeks ago in France, you slap the president in the face, uh, you're probably not just going to spend a night in a cell. You're probably going to spend a long time in prison. And we want to say, and I think we all agree, that that's right, isn't it? It's proportionate because justice is based not just on the, the nature of the crime, but also upon the person, the dignity of the person who is offended. Now, if we sin against God, we are sinning against the one who is eternally worthy and infinitely perfect. Which means that any sin, any offence that is committed against God is in itself infinitely worthy of punishment. That's the first thing. One of the reasons that we question the justice of God in eternal, in eternal punishment is because we don't understand the severity of our sin. And the second reason that it's fair is because sin is not just bound to our lives. I don't know whether you've ever realised this, but those who hate God 
will continue to do so into eternity and for all eternity. It's telling, isn't it, in verse 44, that when Jesus uh, condemns those uh, who oppose him, they don't appeal for his mercy. No one says, do you know what, Jesus, I'm sorry, I was wrong. There's no, nowhere where they ask for forgiveness. And we actually read in the book of Revelation, chapter 16, verse 11, you can flip there if you want, but I'll... I'll um, or you can check, check it out afterwards. We read there that those who receive God's punishment curse God and refuse to repent of what they do. That is the settled state of sinners who are judged by God. Sin will endure. It will continue for eternity. And so God, in his justice, though it is hard for us to appreciate it. God is right to punish sin infinitely. And so we fear God's justice. We fear it because it is glorious, but it is also terrible. It is right, but it is terrifying. And so often we are stuck in this place of don't judge me and it's not fair. We desire justice, but we fear it at the same time. Now, the question for us then, in the face of such judgment, is, is there any encouragement for us today? Can we leave here rejoicing rather than fearing? Is that even possible? Well, I want to just give us two reasons to be encouraged uh, this morning. Two reasons not to fear. And the first is this, that Jesus is on the throne I don't have a slide for this sentence, so sorry about it. Um, Jesus is the one who sits on the throne. I don't know about you, but I find it deeply encouraging to think that the one who sits on the throne, the one who passes judgment, is the one who loves us. Jesus is the one who says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He invites us this morning to come and find life in him. The one who sits on the throne of judgment on the day of judgment is the one who speaks to us today. Do you know that the fact that we have this book is evidence that God loves us? I mean, we could have just sinned against him and turned away from him and he could have just left us to it until the day of judgment. But because he loves us, he comes into our world. He speaks to us even today by the Spirit and warns us to draw us back to him. Jesus, the one who sits on the throne, is the one who dies for us. I don't know what you think about what it would be like to face the judge. I think sometimes our conception of God is that he is this angry, tyrannical God who sits on the throne and shouts at us and, and joyfully condemns us. Well, the Bible tells us that Jesus, Jesus' will is that no man should perish. And we see that because he comes to the cross to die for us in our place, on our behalf. The encouragement for us, first and foremost, as we look to the day of judgment is in the nature of the one who sits on the throne. We know him. And he invites us 
to put our faith in him so that we might receive forgiveness for our sins. The gospel speaks to us of a great substitution. Jesus bears our judgment, our punishment in our place. His final words, it is finished, show that he has paid the price in full for everyone who believes in him. So that the scripture is true when it says that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That is the judge who sits on the throne of judgment. Surely that is encouragement for us today. That we would look to Christ and in doing so we can be confident that our sins are forgiven. That's the first thing. But you know, there are a bunch of people that I've known throughout my pastoral ministry who um, would say that they understand the message of the Bible and have trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. And still, when they think about the day of judgment, they fear the sentence that will be passed. They fear being rejected by God. I don't know, maybe you've had those kind of fears in your life at some point or another. And, and you can say, well, well, look, do you trust in Jesus? Yeah, I, I trust in him, but I just, I just don't have any confidence that I will actually be accepted on the final day. I, I'm not sure that Jesus has heard me. I don't know whether he's actually, uh, whether he's actually saved me or not. I'm scared. Well, how can we, what, what does the scripture say to that person? How can we have confidence uh, if that is our disposition? Not only is Jesus on the throne, firstly, but secondly, we should look at the evidence. We must examine the evidence. You see, we know, don't we? And I think underlying that fear of rejection by the person who professes faith in Christ, underlying that fear is the knowledge that anyone can say anything in court, can't they? Any defendant can say whatever they like to try and get themselves off. That's just, you know, uh, what, what it's like um, giving testimony before a judge. We're free to say, I didn't do it. I'm not guilty. But of course, the key issue uh, in any courtroom, and Jesus' courtroom is exactly the same, is whether there is evidence to support that testimony. You see, on the day of judgment, we see here in Matthew 25 that Jesus sits on on his throne and he will examine the evidence. And so we read um, there in verse 34, if you look down at me, he speaks to believers, to, to sheep, uh, as they're described there, uh, to those who are blessed by his father. And he says, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Now, what's the evidence for such a judgment? That's the thing we long to hear, isn't it? We want to be people who are accepted into the kingdom of God. What, what's the evidence for that? He says, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in, and so on and so forth. See, what's important is not only what we say we believe about Jesus, but it's what we do with Jesus in our lives. Do we actually love him? We might say we do, but do our lives show that? Have we 
uh, fed Jesus? Have we clothed Jesus? Now, you might be like, well, when did I get that opportunity to do that? And that's exactly what uh, the guys here say in verse 37. They're like, um, Jesus, I, I kind of feel like I would have remembered uh, if I'd actually uh, visited you in prison. I, I, that would have been quite an important moment in my life. And I don't know, I just, I can't remember actually doing that. Thank you for welcoming me in. Um, I don't want to jeopardize that, but, you know, when did I actually do that? To which Jesus says, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And that's also the same, uh, that's also true in reverse, in verse 45. To those who are condemned, he says, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Now, what we are seeing here is the principle that our lives evidence our faith. John Calvin once said, the famous Reformation theologian, once said, we are saved by faith in Christ alone, but our faith does not remain alone. In other words, if you are raised to spiritual life, you will necessarily change. That shouldn't surprise us, right? I mean, uh, when people get married, their lives radically change. Yeah? You, um, th- there's been a significant change in their life, and therefore their lives look different. Um, if you've been ill for a long period of time, and then you finally find the miracle cure that makes you feel better, your life radically changes. You can see that. It, it, your life evidences that you're now better. Uh, when, when people take a new job, your life radically changes. We're used to that kind of concept. How much more so, then, should we expect our lives to change if the Spirit of God makes us spiritually alive? If Jesus himself comes to live in us? You see, we don't just say, oh, I believe in Jesus, now my sins are forgiven. No, at the cross, Christ forgives our sins and then transforms our lives. And so James says in James chapter 2, and this is the principle that we're seeing worked out here in Matthew 25, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. That is a faith that will not save you. Simply saying, yeah, I believe in Jesus, and then just getting on with your life, that is a faith that will not save you. But if our faith is genuine, we will be able to see it evidenced in our lives. And the evidence that we will see is that we will start to love the church. Now, the reason for that is that Jesus is united to his people, the church, to the extent that I can say that when the Ings feed you, if you're going to their barbecue in a few minutes' time, they are feeding Christ himself. That's what Jesus actually says here. When I was hungry, you fed me. If you do this to the least of my brothers and sisters, you do it for me. That, that changes, I think, somehow how we, how we think about one another, how we think about the family of the church. Because Jesus is so united to his people that we can say that when we interact with one another, we are interacting with Christ himself. And if we have been saved by Jesus... We love Jesus. If our sins have been forgiven and we have been shown mercy by Christ, then we, then we cannot help but love the Saviour 
who shows us so much grace. And if he is present in his people, then we cannot help but love one another. That's why John says in 1 John, if anyone says he loves God but does not love his brother or sister, he is a liar. You see, if we lack assurance as to whether our profession of faith is genuine, if we fear the day of judgment that is coming, Jesus says, examine the evidence. In the past, when I've had these conversations with folks who are, who are struggling with, um, with fear as they look towards that final day, I, I tend to ask them two questions. The first is this. Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? Do you believe? You see, that's where everything all starts. And if you today look towards the day of judgment and are fearing, let me invite you. Trust in Jesus as your saviour. This is the message of the gospel. Jesus loves you. He died to forgive you for your sins. He bore the punishment in your, in your place. And he rose again so that you can have endless life with him. And he invites you to come to him today. Most of you have been in church a long time. You know that already. But if you're worried that you don't belong to Christ, hear it again. And turn to him and say, Jesus, save me. He never turns anyone away who calls upon his name. But then secondly, I will say to people in that situation, look at your life. Is there evidence of Jesus' spirit at work within you? You know, sometimes that can be hard to discern. You probably need a friend to help you, actually. Uh, It might be quite hard to look back at your life and see where you've changed. Sometimes you can. I look back, honestly, at my life. I look at who I was 15 years ago. I am not the same man today. And that's not just because... Time has made me grow up and stop acting like a child. Frankly, I still act like a child most of the time. (laughs) What I can see is ways in which God, by his spirit, has changed me and helped me put sin to death, helped me love people more. I don't hold credit for that for myself. I know it's Jesus at work within me. But sometimes it's hard to see that ourselves. And so... It's good, if you're worried, to ask a friend. Ask someone who knows you well. Say, how, how am I loving Jesus? How do you see this working out in my life? How have I been loving other Christians, other believers? That often can be the encouragement that we need as we look towards that final day. But you know, it is worth saying that sometimes when we examine our life, when we examine the evidence, sometimes there's not a whole lot of evidence there. And we need to take that seriously. There will be those on that day who will say, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. It is so important now to examine the evidence in your life. Is your profession of faith genuine? A day is coming when it will be too late to examine that evidence. That is the day when we stand before Jesus, before his throne. And so again, if you examine 
your life and see little growth. Two things. One, come back to the gospel again. Come back to Jesus again. And then two, ask him to fill your life with the power and presence of his spirit so that you change. True faith, saving faith, necessarily results in a life that is transformed. We can have great assurance when we look to the day of judgment on the basis of the one who sits on the throne who loves us and on the basis of the fact that he is transforming our lives day by day. And if that is the case, we're going to come to the communion table now. You are welcome to come and eat with us. This is a place of deep assurance for us because it reminds us that his body was broken. His blood was shed so that on that day, he will say to us, come, those blessed by my father, and receive the inheritance that has been prepared for you from before the foundation of the earth. Let me pray, to, pray for us and then we will come to the table together. Heavenly Father, these things are weighty. And there are so many questions, so many fears that we have. We are often people who say, don't judge me. But we're also those who know that life is not fair. And so we glorify you and magnify you and praise you today, Lord Jesus, for your justice. We thank you that one day you will make all things right. But perhaps for some of us this morning, we fear your judgment. And so I ask, Lord God, by your spirit now, speak words of grace to us. Remind us, Jesus, that you, the judge, are the one who stretched out your arms to die on the cross to forgive us for our sins. And also remind us, Lord God, of the ways in which you're working in our lives. Help us to see the fruit that you are producing in us so that we do not fear, but look to your coming with great hope. We ask these things in your name. Amen.